because I gave it away. And uh, it is about 74 verses. So I figured if I get through two verses a week, I'll be in here for about uh, 36 weeks. So Lord willing, by next February, I'll be done. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Hopefully uh, for a couple weeks we'll go through it, and then Dave will take over chapter 27. But really, uh, don't get too concerned. I think we're only going to stick with the first five verses of Matthew 26 today because I think there's a lot to unfold in just these five verses. So join with me, if you will. I'm going to go ahead and read the first five verses of Matthew 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished Uh, all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar amongst the people." Matthew 26, in my opinion, I think of of a lot of uh, theologians, not that I put myself in the same category, but just as a lowly layman, um, this really is the the focal point of all of Scripture. From Genesis 1 all the way to Matthew 26, we really see the accumulation of the prophets and of God revealing himself, of really condensing down to this one point in Matthew 26. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the focal point of all scripture. And what we have here is Jesus preparing himself and also his disciples and his followers for what's going to transpire over the next couple of days. And we see here, really, the plan of God unfolding, really, from all of eternity. Genesis 315, if you're all familiar with, I, I think most of us are, when Adam and Eve had fallen in the garden and God said to the serpent, yes, you will crush the, or you will bruise the heel of the Messiah, but he will crush your head. And I think we see here in Matthew 26, finally the beginning of the end of, of death and of, of Satan. Not that he is a vanquished foe now, but we see that, that Christ has come to fulfill all things and he soon will fulfill all things. And what we have here, too, is, you know, the heavenly realm commanded by God himself has planned from all of eternity this very moment for the death of the Son of God. Revelation 13:8, I think, is a well-familiar verse with us all. You know, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And again, how, how do I describe, how is that even understandable by us? I don't think it is. Before Adam and Eve fell in the garden... The eternal plan of the triune God was for Jesus Christ to come in the form of man, the God-man, and give himself on Calvary for sinners. Unbelievable, but really, it's what the scripture tells us. And it's for the Son of God, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I think we have to keep in mind, too, through this passage, is the demonic realm, really under the satanic forces of Satan himself, are here at this time doing everything in their power the power that has been given to them by God himself to thwart this plan. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament especially. Um, I remember I did a Sunday school probably about two years ago just on the, the uh, 
plans of Satan, how he's always trying to destroy the Messiah, especially in the Old Testament, trying to thwart his plans. I mean, think of um, even in, when Jesus was born under Herod, trying to destroy all of the babies under two years old. That was a plan of Satan to try to, to kill the Messiah. And I think we have a habit here of Satan finally and all the demonic forces coming together, really, for one last attempt to vanquish and destroy Christ. We have to remember, too, that this is all under the sovereign plan of God. So even though it does appear we have two plans here, that of God and of Satan, I think we're all well familiar that it's all under the sovereign plan of God. And truly, we can say that man or Satan and evil meant it for evil, but truly, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was meant for good and meant for our good. And I think today we can rejoice in that. So, diving into the first verse, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings. And I think we can take here that these sayings were from the first or the previous two chapters, or maybe even three chapters, where Jesus was going through these different discourses, the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus' prediction of the temple, or the destruction of the temple, his little book really of revelation of the end times, the great tribulation, the parable of the talents, and the Son of Man will judge the nation. So really, what it's saying here is, after Jesus had said all of these things, now all of these things can be taken as, I think, future, especially in the time of Christ and of the disciples. Now, it's how you interpret that, of whether it's the destruction of the temple, 40 years later about, or whether it's still things to come in our lifetime. But I don't think that's really important. But I think it's important for us to understand what Jesus had been saying in uh, chapters 23, 24, and 25. Now, I don't want to recap the whole thing because I don't think that's necessary. But put, in your, put yourself in the disciples' sandals, if you will. Not shoes, because I don't think they had shoes, but sandals. And you're one of the 12 disciples. And Jesus had just got done saying all of these things. Really catastrophic things. And I don't think the disciples understood what most of it was, as we don't understand what most of it was. But when we still read these things in Matthew 24 and 25, we're still kind of shaken, like, my goodness, this is cataclysmic stuff. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes here for a moment. When Jesus had said all of these things, and then in verse 2, they have in the back of their mind all of these things that Jesus just said. And now we come to verse 2. And Jesus says to them, you know that after two days is over, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. We've all been familiar with, you know, scary stories and, and bad stories. But I think here the disciples, really, they get a, a double whammy of these future things to come that don't appear good. And then their, their master, their, their uh teacher, Jesus, is saying, in two days I will be handed over for crucifixion. I mean, if you're a disciple, this has to just be like, you know, kind of breathtaking. And as we'll see here in a moment, Jesus on multiple occasions beforehand had predicted his death. But this one, this is really, he's given a time and a date of when these things are going to happen. And I just have to, you know, really think if I was a disciple, really how difficult this would have to be to understand that Jesus is saying that in two days he's going to be handed over for crucifixion. So I think with that in mind, we have to really understand uh, even the disciples' response over the next uh, couple of uh, chapters, really, I think, quite funny 
Uh, even though it was sinful, I think in our situation we do the same thing. But really put yourself in their shoes. That they were men, no different than we are. Now, let's look here at a couple passages. And Jesus and Matthew predicted his death three times before this. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. We have here, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. So, verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And verse 22, then Peter aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So we see here this first example of Jesus Christ saying that he is going to die. And what happens? Is the apostle Peter, probably being the spokesperson for the rest of the disciples, so the disciples are probably thinking the same thing, But the great Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, saying, Lord Jesus, these things are not for you. We're not going to let this happen. And as we'll see, another chapter of chapter 27, uh, Peter actually pulls out his sword and whacks off the ear of Malchus. But the disciples still aren't in this frame of mind. They still don't understand the purpose of Christ. And I'm not saying we would either. I don't think they'd been given the full revelation of what Christ had come to do. And then we see another chapter over, Matthew 17. Jesus, the second time, predicts his death, 17, 22 to 23. Now, that were, now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And listen, at the end of this, verse 23, And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So they again, Jesus doesn't give a timeline of of when he is to be crucified. But nonetheless, he tells his disciples that he will eventually be crucified. He will be betrayed. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, as I think we would. And then listen here, Matthew 20, 17 to 19. We have very similar Jesus again for the third time predicts his death. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So again, we see Jesus is saying he's going to be betrayed. And what's interesting is he's saying he's going to be betrayed this includes Judas. Judas is still in the 12 disciples. He's still in the inner circle at this time of the 12. And whether he knew he was going to betray Jesus, which he probably did, he still had that you know, greedy, selfish mind, but the other disciples didn't know who it was. And each time, it appears that as Jesus is predicting his own death, he gets a little bit more descriptive. He gives the disciples a little bit more detail of how he's going to die, where he's going to die, and who it's going to be by. And we see here that he is going to be betrayed to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then verse 19 gives us a little bit more detail. And he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. 
So the Jews are going to, he's going to be betrayed by Judas to the Jewish leaders of the day. And the Jewish leaders, since they wouldn't, couldn't really kill anyone, that was up to the Roman civil government, they're going to hand him over to Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities where they will scourge him and where they will crucify him. You think that you would be perplexed if you're a disciple or a little confused? If you were in their shoes, do you think you would kind of struggle with this? Is this really the plan? Is this really what it's all about? I think I most certainly would. So all this bad is going to happen. Then as soon as the Passover starts, he'll be handed over to be crucified. And I think that's really a pivotal question we have to ask ourselves, really understanding what the disciples are going through here and those around Jesus. Now, uh, before I continue, I'll go ahead and pause. If anyone has any questions or comments or things they'd like to add, please, please go ahead. Well, that's good. I've answered every question. Man, it's going well. So again, as I mentioned before, I want to look here briefly at the first five verses, and really I think of two plans that are going about here. Verse 1 and 2 show us that Christ knew and was ready to be crucified. Again, as I said earlier, we're reminded of Genesis 3.15, of Revelation 13.8, and then also to add another verse, Acts 2.23, which is one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. And Luke records here of Peter talking to the Jewish people of the day. He says, This man, that is Jesus Christ, delivered over the, by, by the predetermined, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. As we see here, as with all of Scripture, but especially here of Matthew 26, this is completely, utterly under the sovereign hand of God. Jesus Christ himself being God was completely under his plan and authority. In Christ, as in the triunity of of God, there was complete cohesion, complete unity. Christ willingly went along with the Father's will, knowing that he was to fulfill all things. Let me just pause here as I kind of reiterate from just a minute ago and remind myself and you also that the triune God sovereignly planned and carried out the crucifixion of Christ And I think this is just a reminder to us also. If he's able to do that, isn't isn't it also encouraging that in our own lives, we are under his sovereign hand? So as the triune God planned the crucifixion in eternity past, this huge event, I think it's encouraging for us to realize that this in our own lives, is sovereignly controlled by God. Our, our own puny lives, often insignificant compared to the greater scheme of things, are sovereignly under the hand of God. And I think, really, that's an encouragement to each and every one of us here. So in the meantime, as Jesus is telling his, disciple these, his disciples these, we have the Jewish leaders of the day who are conniving and plotting themselves of how they are going to rid themselves of this individual, Jesus Christ, and then eventually his followers. So let me read verses 3 to 5, and then we'll go ahead and read another passage. 
Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was quite. But they said, Not during the great feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So we see this plan developing or unfolding between the Jewish leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, and also the elders of the people. So these four groups, which were really, the, it appears, the four main power structures of, the, of Israel of the day, are forming up, are creating a coalition amongst themselves to rid themselves of Jesus. You know what's interesting is I think the scribes and the Pharisees really couldn't stand, or the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees couldn't stand each other. And you can bet that there was politics amongst these groups. They were all vying for power. But really what it was is they allied themselves with one another just for this time to rid themselves of Christ. What's the old saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I think really we see that here with these Jewish leaders as they put their differences aside for a while simply so they could rid themselves of, uh, rid themselves of Christ. And if you want, flip over to John 11, 47 to 53. This is John giving another detail uh, of an earlier time period, maybe a few weeks, maybe a, uh, maybe even a couple months beforehand, where the Jewish leaders were already plotting. And we'll go and we'll see that here in a couple other sections of Scripture. But verse... 47 says here in John 11, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered counsel and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did, not saying on his own authority, but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. So as we see, other time period previous before this, the Jewish leaders are colluding amongst themselves how they can rid themselves and destroy themselves of Jesus. And this is just kind of a footnote here. I find this quite interesting. In uh, my new Geneva Study Bible, uh, verse 51, they have just a note. Uh, He prophesied, do you see in verse 51, he prophesied, that is Caiaphas. In the purpose of God, Caiaphas unknowingly uttered a prophecy. It was a blessing that Jesus died because his death was necessary for the salvation, not only of the Jews, but of the elect of the whole world. So again, we'll see the evil plots and devices of men, of these Jewish leaders, and Caiaphas being a foil, unwittingly, prophesizes of what Jesus Christ's death really is for. The salvation, not only of the many in Israel, but for the whole world. And he says... That one man should die for the people. Yes, Caiaphas, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. One man, that is Jesus Christ, the God-man, came and died 
one man died so that all of us could live. And going back to Matthew 26, let's just take a moment to discover who Caiaphas is because he's a pretty important individual as he's named here and in other parts of scripture. So uh, MacArthur said in his commentaries, Caiaphas ruled from 18 AD to 36 AD. And for a high priest, that appears to have been a long time, nearly 18 years. And what MacArthur kind of hypothesizes is that this guy was, he was authorities. He was in, in uh, good order with the Roman authorities and also with the Herodian dynasty. So Caiaphas appears to be a pretty intelligent man. And MacArthur also notes, and this is quite scary, MacArthur also says that every time he's seen in the scripture, he is seeking Christ's destruction. Now, I think one of the worst things in all of scripture to be known for is to be known as the one, Caiaphas, the one trying to seek and destroy Christ. Isn't that just absolutely unbelievable to think of? And um, I think, again, not to go off on a tangent, but really the grace of God that we've been given the eyes to see, but Caiaphas was used through the hardening of his own heart to try and destroy Jesus and bring all things uh, to fulfillment. And uh, again, going back to John 11, John gives us some more detail that we aren't privy to in Matthew. It appears this meeting between the Jewish power was another one, but it was before the triumphal entry. So yeah, the, the meeting of the Jewish leaders in John 11 was before the triumphal entry. So we'll see it as an accumulation over time. It's getting more and more to take Christ away. And if anyone has any questions or comments, you know, please feel free to raise your hand now. Yes, Dad. He is, a, he is a type of antichrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that, and that's uh, something to take note of, of like the sovereignty of God. Is I think often people, they'll read this story and they'll say, well, how is it fair that God let Judas you know, betray Jesus or these Jewish leaders? But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the human nature. Of our Human nature is you know, the antithesis. We're haters of God. So all God did with Judas and with the Jewish leaders is he just handed them over to himself. If you remember in Exodus, through the plagues, you'll see multiple times where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Really, God, all he has to do to harden people's hearts is just withdraw his general grace. And you just turn yourself over to yourself, to your natural state more and more, where you become more sinful, more evil, more wicked. And I think that's what we have here with the Jewish leaders. There's nothing unfair. There's nothing of God being unjust. It's simply God handing people over to themselves to do what they want to do, which is sin and be evil. 
especially against Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Charles Ellicott, he says uh, in his commentary, uh, kind of as Caiaphas and also the Jewish leaders and their plan, that the plan, as far as Caiaphas was concerned, had been formed before, uh, actually before, immediately after the raising of Lazarus. So right after Lazarus, uh, or right before Lazarus was raised from the dead, this form was taking shape. What had happened since the kingly entry, the expulsion of the money changers, the way in which our Lord had baffled their attempt to entrap him in his speech, would all work as so many motives to immediate action. The meeting now assembled may have been either a formal session of the Sanhedrin or an informal conference of its chief members prior to the regular meeting. The former seems on the whole the more probable that this was uh, a formal session of the Sanhedrin. Really what I think he's getting here is that they had begun to talk amongst themselves before Jesus' triumphal entry of ridding themselves of this individual. But then they saw the triumphal entry. They saw the multitudes of how they looked at Christ, and they saw his healing, and they saw his teaching, and they really began to understand that this guy is a problem to our political power. And I think, as I mentioned before, we have to understand, really, what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the elders of Israel Really, what were they? Yes, they were spiritual leaders of Israel, but I think that a lot of them were politicians. And Jesus was a threat to their own power, so they had to do everything in their own power to rid themselves of Christ. And also, too, uh, MacArthur thinks that Caiaphas may have had some dealings in the temple. Since he was in power that long, he may have had a lot of influence and making a lot of money in the temple. And when Jesus went in there and overturned everything and threw everything over, that was a threat to the pocketbook of Caiaphas. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been so bothered by something or someone that the more they talk, the more or the more you think about them, the more you despise them? You know, I think we often, there is stuff like that, whether it be political leaders in our own day or just people we don't like. And they don't really have to do anything. You just have to see them or, you know, just think about them. And you just, your heart just clenches like this. The very thought of them just makes you seethe in anger. And I think the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of the day really had that problem with Christ. He didn't really even do anything, really, to them, other than kind of just show them they're evil. But they hated him so much that the more they thought about him, the more angry and despicable that he became in their eyes. And again, we'll see that in the fulfillment of them taking Christ to the cross. But then verse 5, we have the Pharisees saying, But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So again, we have this, the Jewish leaders wanting to take Christ. But as we said, being good politicians, they still have, they can't just do anything they want. Sure, they have a lot of power, but they can't just go around taking out whomever they want to take out. And we see here that that's clearly the case. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the Jewish leaders wanted to take out Christ and they wanted to destroy him. But they were still scared of the multitude. Let's look here a couple of examples. Matthew 21, 25 to 27. And our examples are going to be in Matthew 21. 
Let me flip there. Verses 25 to 27. Let me actually read 23 to 27 because that will set up the whole thing. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you will tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? (laughs) From men, listen here, we fear the multitude. For all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So they confront Christ, and Christ being, I think, the greatest comebacks of all, especially against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, knew that the people, the multitudes, accounted John the Baptist as a, as a great prophet. And he entraps him here. And the Pharisees and the leaders are concerned because if they say, it's from heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe? And if they say, it, uh, it was, um, looking here, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all counted John as a prophet. So the Jewish leaders still wanting to dispose of Christ, they couldn't. Because Christ at this time had the multitude on his side. And really, taking that into consideration, I find it interesting how in just a couple chapters over in verse twenty or in chapter 27, as Jesus is standing before Barabbas and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders, it was actually the multitude that, through the, the, the behest of the Jewish leaders, but the multitude was the one that condemned Christ to death. So we'll just see how that unfolds. And then verses 45 and 46, the Pharisees... Uh, in verse 45, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. <laughs> but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Again, just more anecdotal evidence that what the Pharisees and the leaders are talking about in verse 5 of 26, their fear of the multitude, of course, is well given because they are scared that if they do something with Jesus, the multitude's going to come after them. So in a way, you know, even these politicians, even in places where you have absolute authority, most of the time you can't actually have absolute authority because the people have a breaking point. And I think the Pharisees understood that here, that if at this time they did something with Jesus, the multitudes were going to come after them. And then... I think, uh, again, we need to focus here on these uh, parallel plans that the Pharisees wanted to wait till after Passover to take away Christ, but that was not in the plan of God. The plan of God was for it to take place before that, and which it did. And multiple times they had tried to get Jesus, but his time was not yet. And as we'll see, probably next week... Um, Matthew 26, 18, Christ says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. 
So we'll see all of these times where they tried to get Jesus and kill him, but they couldn't. But the only reason was is because Jesus' time was not at hand. And again, need to realize that through all of this, through this Last Supper, even when they come to get Christ, all of this is in his hand. You know, the very breaths of uh, the very next breaths of, of these leaders and of these Roman soldiers and of the Roman leaders, their very breath is in the hand of Christ. And that he is allowing all of these things to take place um, for our good. And uh, we will, we have just a couple minutes. I'll just read uh, verses 6 to 13. Before I do, if anyone has any uh, comments or anything to add, please go ahead and do that at this time. All right. Well, we only have, uh, I try to get done just a couple minutes early. We only have a couple minutes, so we'll talk here, verse 6 to 13, just briefly. Let me go ahead and read it. The anointing at Bethany. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, women came to him, costly, fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, this woman has done, or this, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So we are, take place at a different point in scripture. Christ is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And as we get in more detail next week, we'll see here what this symbolizes, what the disciples had to say about it. And then beginning of verses 14 to 16, now is the time Judas begins to betray Christ and hand him over to the authorities. So with that, uh, done about five minutes early, if anyone has any comments or questions, you can say them now. If not, you can say them afterwards. All right. Well, thank you.